Hello and welcome to another Who's He video podcast with me, Phil. A few months ago we released a special video podcast dedicated to the enfant terrible and master of monster acting, Hamilton Prickwillow, who recounted some of his experiences of working on Doctor Who. We approached Hamilton again for a further interview to which he readily agreed, as according to him he still had plenty of scores to settle. Unfortunately, shortly after this interview was recorded, Hamilton Prickwillow sadly died. His family said his condition was favourable. We at the Who's He podcast are deeply saddened at his sudden passing, and we are proud to have known him, however briefly that was. Earlier today, his son Dingleberry Prickwillow released this statement to the press in honour of his father. I would like to thank the members of the press for coming today. I, I have prepared a, a short statement uh, that I'd like to read. Uh, my father, while always errant from our lives working across the country, still managed to be a fantastic shit to us all. Selfish, vain, and incredibly bitter. He was always jealous of other success, particularly of Warrington Flange, who was a superior actor and whose death my father took great comfort from. It was this jealousy that led to my father's sudden death, dying from envelope glue poisoning, as he was writing 50 poison pen letters a day to the actress Glenda Jackson. This is despite her giving up acting in 1992. So I can only say this, good riddance to the old bastard, you are to acting like hemorrhoids are to horse riding. Thank you, thank you. So, not a happy childhood then. Despite this, his family and estate have given us permission to show you this, Hamilton Prickwillow's final interview. Despite the ravages of envelope glue, this interview, recorded once again in his gentleman's club, finds Hamilton in good form and full of stories from his days of working on Doctor Who. So without further ado, the Who's He podcast are proud to bring you the final interview with Hamilton Prickwillow. When I was cast as the third Monoptera, a little bit to the right um, in the Web Planet, I'd been recommended by William Harton himself. I'd gained his respect when I said the production of The Keys of Marinus and Dear Bill would always work with people that he really trusted. Um, so now that I was part of his inner circle, as it were, uh, Bill told the director, Richard Martin, that I was to be cast. And that was that, as everyone was absolutely terrified of Bill. Uh, he reduced Richard Martin to tears once, you know. Um, Bill wasn't happy with the bandage on his head in the uh, destruction, so he kept flicking the end of Martin's nose, going, hmm, hmm, uh, until Martin started sobbing. Uh, Bill was a terror but it was always with good reason, you know? Um, it was always for the good of the show. Anyway, when I went for my old costume fitting along with the, my fellow actors, uh, Montague Bushygap, Ashcroft Scrimpton Plimpton, and Bancroft Finger Fudge, seeing the butterfly come bumblebee costume for the first time was quite a shocking too. Um, we all felt bloody ridiculous, to be honest, as I thought I looked like a giant humbug with wings. Uh, but this was nothing compared to the Zavi costume. Uh, the actors inside them couldn't see or hear a bloody thing. Um, so I did have a degree of sympathy for them. Well, all of them except one, of course, John Scott Martin. 
Uh, John Scott Martin was a terrible practical joker. There's a little, in fact, you know, but I have little tolerance for practical jokers. They're a bloody nuisance. And when you have a job to do, you don't want them pissing about. Acting is a serious business. What happened to me has been kept secret for years, but as you know, there were not a flu. And this was my chance to do my own stunts. I'd always wanted to do more stunts, and as I didn't want to be represented on screen by someone in an ill-fitting wig, and this was my big chance, a dream come true, if you will. So when they came to film the flying scenes, I'm strapped into this bloody harness and hiked up into the rafters on piano wire. I started looking around at the others there, and they all seemed very calm and serene. But what was I doing? Clutching my balls, that's what. My harness was done up so tight it pushed my swanicles so far up you could have confused them with my tonsils. I looked down at the studio floor, with tears streaming down my face, and all I could see was John Scott Martin chuckling to himself. Uh, it turns out he thought he made a fantastic wheeze to have my harness over-tightened, and it would be a great way for me to bond with the crew. Uh, well, bollocks to that. I'd already established myself as a serious actor, and I was not about to have my career derailed by a man dressed as an ant. So I just carried on as if nothing had happened. I'm a professional, and nothing gets in the way of my performance, not even swollen knackers. Um, after they'd finished filming the flying scenes, I immediately marched over to Dickie Martin, still clutching my red-hot gonads, and demanded that John Scott Martin be sacked immediately. And my dear, dear friend Bill Hartner was right behind me, I might add. Gesticulating like this, and pointing at Dickie's nose. Well, they didn't sack him. They asked John Scott Martin to apologise to me and let that be an end to it. He proffered the hand of friendship, and I just walked away. I just refused to accept his apology. I call it stubbornness, if you will, but I have my pride, and I have my dignity as an actor. Those things are important, especially if you're playing a man sized moth. And uh, every production. I appealed on after that dreadful, dreadful day. Uh, I avoided John Scott Martin if he was cast as well. Um, especially when he played a Dalek, as that was the only time he didn't muck about. Um, that is straight little pecking order when it came to Daleks, um, entering the room. And John Scott Martin always had to be first through the door. Um, actually, it was him that made sure they never got inside a Dalek. Did you know that? You know that? Um, yeah, they would have been me first through the bloody door, then I can tell you. I did have the last laugh, though. Um, he desperately wanted to be a Dalek again when Doctor Who was resurrected, and Russell T. Davis didn't even return his calls. Ha! Another production where I nearly bloody well got killed was The Invasion of Time. Uh, now, once again, I was called upon by Graham Williams, who was in a dreadful flap with this story, as they were once on Tar and Short. Um, actually, the only occasions I ever spoke to Graham is when he was in a flap and uh, needed my help. Uh, so anyway, um, I was the go-to actor for Doctor Who Monsters, though, um, and my reputation as a no-nonsense professional was as far-reaching as Bill Cotton Jr. Um, in fact, uh, dear Bill asked me to be the godfather to his granddaughter, Fern Cotton, but I refused, as she was, uh, well, quite frankly, bloody annoying even then. So, anyway, uh, the Sontarans were added to the story very late in the day, so dear Graham uh, was scrabbling all over the place, uh, trying to find actors to fill the costumes. Uh, now, as we all know, they cast uh, Derek Dedman and Stuart Fell, as they were of short stature. 
uh, whereas I'm six foot two. Um, but Graham knew what he was doing as one of my acting techniques is to uh, condense. Uh, you see, once I put on a costume, I inhabit the character. So such is my skill, I am able to actually shrink. Mm. Yeah, so, in fact, you, you know, all the times the master shrunk people with that dildo gun of his? Uh, well, they were all me. <laughs> uh, so, um, as we were assembled uh, for our costume fittings, I performed my condensing trick, uh, but to my left, one of the other actors was eyeing me with envy. Do you know who that was? You know who that was? Warrington Bloody Flange. That's who? Oh, God, this was the first time uh, we had actually crossed paths. And his envy of my acting skills was, well, quite frankly, already evident. Uh, but I had no idea, absolutely no idea, to what lengths he would go to to ruin one of my performances. I had, you know, absolutely clueless. Um, while everyone else was marvelling at my condensing, I let slip that it actually increases my body mass and therefore uh, makes me a little bit heavier than usual. So running and jumping um, could be a bit awkward, um, especially in the Sontaran costume, which was, well, quite as bulky and heavy as, as it was, really. Uh, but everything went fine, uh, recording in the studio. Uh, there were no dramas until we went to film the char TARDIS chase scene at the swimming pool. Oh dear, yes. Um, in fact, uh, the whole filming sequence became um, extremely debauched um, as the crew decided to have a pool party um, in between filming. I can't really go into too much detail, unfortunately, um, as most of the people concerned are still alive. Um, but I will say this, the police were involved. And a big bag of crabs. Uh, but getting back to the filming, um, when it came to the scene where Tom is chased round the swimming pool, I was chosen, naturally, uh, to lead the charge, as it were. Uh, we had rehearsed this scene at the Acton Hilton, and Tom Baker and I shared a few lunchtime drinks uh, going over the scene, even going as far as to rehearse the scene in the pub, um, whilst actually still holding our drinks. Um, we didn't spill a drop. That's how much we rehearsed it. Totally, totally um, dedicated to who we were. You see, people always criticise Doctor Who um, for its cheap production values, uh, but everyone put their hearts and souls into it, even to the point where we would lose valuable drinking time to ensure we got things right. That's how professional we were. It just goes on to show, you know, people forget this. Um, anyway, the day arrived when we filmed uh, the scene of the swimming pool, and I was raring to go. Never before had I felt so confident about filming in my entire life. But then I noticed something in the corner of my eye. A sun lounger. It wasn't there before, and it certainly didn't feature um, in, in, in our rehearsals. I um, immediately remonstrated um, with the director, Gerald Blake, as this sun lounger could have spelt total and utter disaster um, for the production. Um, a fifth series of Blake 7 was actually cancelled due to an unplanned appearance of an escritoire. So it goes to show, you cannot leave anything to chance. You just cannot, you just cannot. It's, it's totally, totally unacceptable. Anyway, whilst I was shouting at Gerald, I hadn't realised that Warrington Flange was uh, standing behind me. 
with a gigantic smirk on his loathsome, fart-ridden face. Uh, Tom Baker told me this in the BBC bar later that evening over a bucket of Campari. Yes, uh, it transpires that Flange uh, totally and utterly jealous of my condensing skills placed the sun lounger in the way knowing uh, that my now increased mass and the bulky costume would make it extremely difficult to jump over. Um, well, yes, it was. However, after Gerald Blake said it was too late to move the sun lounger, um, as the scene shifters uh, were on a tea break, and uh, any attempt to move it would result in a wildcat strike. Uh, so I had no option but to make the jump. Ah, ah dear. Ah, now this was a real test of my skills as an actor, and I was determined that this would be my finest hour. So Tom set off round the swimming pool, and I gave chase, and I very nearly did it. I leapt onto the chair and tried to use it to help me to launch into the air. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the sun lounger, well, it just collapsed under my condensed uh, weight, and I tripped over. Um, and I nearly got away with it too, had it not been for Tom uh, throwing another sun lounger at me. And uh, that was it. I went arse over tit. Ah, oh, dear. I, I was distraught. I was absolutely distraught. Um, Flange thought it was hilarious and immediately went over to Gerald Blake and tried to worm his way into his good books by saying that he could do it better like, like the odious little shit that he was. Uh, but uh, fortunately for me, they didn't have time uh, to film it again, so they had to go um, with, with what they had, you know, which wasn't much, to be honest. Um, but what happened next um, was truly, truly remarkable. The wonderful Stuart Fell um, saw what was going on and took me to one side and said, don't worry about it, Hamilton. What Flange did was appalling. I will tell everyone it was me who fell over. Well, you know, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. What an absolute gentleman. Uh, well, of course, I immediately accepted um, his generous offer, as I was an actor of some stature with a reputation to uphold. So, um, there you go. The, the secret is out. Uh, well, that little incident set in motion the long-running hatred between Warrington Flange um, and myself. The little f Ah, yes, the twin dilemma. Um, unfortunately, this was the only story I appeared in with the wonderful Colin Baker. Um, it's such a shame we'd never worked together again as we got on tremendously well. We, we really did, really did. Um, but even this single appearance together was pure circumstance. Um, in fact, it was amazing it, it happened at all. Um, it all goes back to 1980 and the production of Full Circle. Uh, they were casting actors to play the Marshmen, and uh, finding work on Doctor Who at this time was particularly difficult. Um, the producer that had just taken over um, on Doctor Who, John Nathan Turner, wasn't particularly fond of hiring cast and crew um, from the series past, um, so a lot of us were pretty much, well, really, uh, just left in the cold. Um, it was a shock to a lot of us, as, well, really working on Doctor Who felt like being part of a family. 
um, then all of a sudden there's a new head of the family and you'll find yourself, well, being asked to leave home, as it were. Yes, great shame, great shame that really. Um, but, um, but thanks really to dear old Barry Letts, who was holding um, uh, Nathan Turner's hands throughout that particular uh, series. Um, he got me cast as the lead Marshman. Um, Nathan Turner wasn't happy. In fact, he totally ignored me, even though I put in the performance of a lifetime, um, to which I got standing ovation um, from the cast and crew um, when the film had finished. Um, yes, wonderful days, wonderful days, yes. Um, I even managed to lift uh, Tom Baker's spirits, as he was uh, very morose at the time. Um, he was having... He wasn't happy at all. He was leaving the show. He wasn't happy with his costume either. Um, it was the question marks on the shirt collar uh, that seemed to irk him the most. Um, peculiar. Uh, but we had a fantastic time getting appallingly drunk most lunchtimes to lament the question mark collars mostly. And watching Tom kicking canine. Great days. Great days. Yes. Um, in fact, I was his rock during that time. I was really his Paul Burrell uh, to his um, Princess Diana, except I didn't steal any of his valuables. Um, anyway, Nathan Turner wasn't having any of it. Out with the old and in with the new. That was his motto. Shame he didn't apply that to his bloody awful shirts. <laughs> ah, dear. Ah, so, um, Anyway, he did his utmost to keep Tom and I apart, and was quite rude uh, to me on quite a few occasions. Um, once when Tom and I were sharing a cigarette uh, between takes, Nathan Turner shouted out uh, across the set, um, Get that old bastard away from the talent! Yes, uh, Tom and I looked at each other, um, wondering which of us he was actually referring to. Uh, the penny finally dropped when the director... Uh, Peter Grimwade frog-marched me away and Tom, away from Tom and, and I then realised that we were not going to recreate that old magic of those old days on set. Yeah, terrible shame, terrible shame. Um, so imagine my surprise uh, when Nathan Turner himself requested my services um, for the twin dilemma. I was having a bad patch acting-wise um, during this period and it, was, it wasn't for my reoccurring role as Terry Wogan's stick microphone on Blankety Blank, um, I would have been destitute. Um, Terry always handled me with care. He was always a gentleman, but it was very demeaning to be fondled intimately by Britain's King of Light Entertainment um, on a weekly basis. Um, yes. But so getting the call from the Doctor Who production office again was a godsend. It really was. I'm, I'm not sure if Nathan Turner felt guilty um, after that Warriors of the Deep debacle, but being cast as the lead monster in a new Doctor's opening story was a big deal. It really was. It really was. A, a real honour, in fact. Um, so when we met, all met for the script read-through, uh, this was the first time I met, I met Colin Baker, and of course the lovely... Lovely, Nicola Bryant. Uh, Colin and I immediately found ourselves to be kindred spirits um, as we both share a keen interest in tea bag collecting, uh, a passion we both share and converse in to this very day. Um, so every chance we got during the shoot, we would talk about our travels um, across the world to find the most exotic uh, tea bags. So, um, once again, um, Nathan Turner couldn't hide his dark side. 
um, and try to keep Colin and I apart. Um, anytime we would start a conversation, Nathan Turner would call out, Colin, Colin, come over here now. Um, and, and Colin, being the new boy, didn't want to rock the boat, and so did as he was told. Hmm, uh, this went on for practically, well, the whole shoot. But when I was put in the costume of Mestor, uh, with Edwin Richfield, dear Edwin Richfield, um, providing the voice, of course, uh, Colin and I didn't get much chance to talk anyway. Uh, the Mestor costume was practically immobile, and I just had to sit there in between takes, trying to see out of the damn thing. Um, always a common problem, that, trying to see out of your costume. Um, but this one was particularly bad, as it was cross-eyed. Ridiculous bloody looking thing. Um, but it was a strange production, that one. Uh, very strange, very strange indeed. I, 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 I remember when Colin strode out in his new costume, the whole crew just stood there, open-mouthed. Um, what a monstrosity. Ah, yeah, Colin was clearly upset as I saw his bottom lip trembling. Um, I also can remember Nathan Turner standing there with an evil grin on his face, as if this was the reaction he wanted. Uh, but then I realised he wasn't actually looking at any of us. I followed his gaze um, behind Colin, and standing in the doorway was Michael Grade, who just did this. I'd, uh, unbelievable. Um, and then the twins were introduced to us. Um, nice enough fellows, but good God, they couldn't act. They could not act. Um, I remember dear, dear Morris Denham saying to me later, I might as well be acting opposite two sodding sacks of potatoes. Um, anyway, I saw Grade again making gestures to Nathan Turner to the effect that he was finished. The strange thing was, um, Michael Grade hadn't actually started working at the BBC at that time. Um, he just prowled around the BBC t uh, television centre, uh, making everyone's lives a bloody misery, and making rude or violent gestures uh, to people he didn't like. Very peculiar. Um, I wish I thought of that, actually. I really do wish I had. I was obviously thrilled when Doctor Who uh, came back to our screens, but I realised that my time was up when it came to playing the monster. Uh, I'm just too long in the tooth, uh, and there comes a time we just have to say enough is enough, really. Um, my agent, um, uh, Rodney Thruxton Circuit, was contacted by the Doctor Who production office, and they um, offered me an audition for, uh, for the role of the Slovene. Um, I was a little annoyed, to be honest, uh, that they asked me uh, to audition, as what I'd filmed over the years was one big audition. Uh, but I went along to Cardiff, regardless. I'm an actor, and I have to work. So when I arrived there, I was initially very pleased with um, how they treated me. It was very much apparent that they were in awe of me, and I was, in fact, the only person um, from the original series uh, they had asked um, to take part at that point anyway, yes. Um, I was led to a room um, to meet Julie Gardner, Phil Collinson, and, of course, Russell T. Davis. But when I walked in, the mood changed just like that. Um, it was the most intimidating atmosphere I've ever encountered. I really was. Um, I remember the room being almost completely dark and devoid of furniture. 
there was a single chair um, in the middle of the room, which was under uh, a bright light, white light. And at the opposite end of the room uh, was a table where the three of them sat. Ah, oh, very intimidating. Um, I could make out Julie Gardner and um, Phil Collinson, but I never ever saw Russell T. Davis. Um, he just sat in the middle of them, in the shadows. All I saw was his uh, silhouette and great puffs of smoke coming from the enormous cigar that he was smoking. Sinister, very sinister. Um, I did attempt uh, to break the ice by telling off Davis for smoking. But all he said was, sit the f*** down. I, I, I do apologise uh, for the language, um, but this is absolutely true. This really happened. Um, anyway, Gardner and Collinson just stared at me. Uh, neither of them said a bloody word. Um, Davis then said, can you act? I was just about to answer when he banged his fist down the table and shouted, too late! Gardner and Collinson um, just started a slow hand clap. Um, I had absolutely no idea what to do. I, I just stood up, I, I did up my jacket, and said, Hinchcliffe would have had all three of you, and left the room. I later told this story to uh, Chris Reckleston at that um, bloody awful Doctor Who 50th anniversary show on BBC Three. Um, you never saw either of us on camera, though. Um, we just hit at the back out of sheer embarrassment. Um, I mean, the presenter kept referring to everyone by their characters' names, for Christ's sake. Idiot. And I expected more from Zoe Ball. Her father was furious. Anyway, Eckerson told me that at his audition for the role of the Doctor, he had to dance in tiny blue pants for a staggering 15 minutes. 15 minutes! In blue pants! Small ones! Well, if that's how the BBC treats its talent, uh, I'm glad I'm out of it. <laughs> uh, but um, I am pleased that the Doctor Who has been a success since he came back. Um, I wish it will. I really do. Um, though I have heard the Stephen Moffat's audition process is weirder than Russell's. Um, something to do with the mock hanging or something? I don't know. But um, anyway, I'm very proud. No, no, no. Extremely proud to have been part of television history. So, um, well, here's to Doctor Who. Cheers. Cheers.